This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Thorn Podcast. We, again, have Dr. Mary K. Ross, the Chief Medical Officer for Thorn. She's here with us for a third and final episode. I should say final for now, but I'm sure we'll hear from her again. It's always good to have you on the podcast, Dr. Ross. How are things going for you? Things are going great, Bob, and I'm thrilled to be here. Things are, are wonderful. At Thorn, we have lots of exciting things that we're working on. And I know that you are kind of getting settled into your new home in New York. That's right. I think I've been here for maybe eight days. <laughs> eight <now>. days. <laughs> I suspect you've already seen a little bit of snow. I have, and we're supposed to have an ice storm today. Probably didn't see a lot of snow where you were living before in the south. No snow in Georgia to speak of, no. <laughs> well, it's been uh, around 10 degrees here in Colorado, and uh, and we got a pretty good snowstorm the other day, which... We're always happy for it. Yes, I love the snow. So let's, uh, why don't we dive into the main discussion for this week, which is uh, toxins and specifically uh, heavy metals and mycotoxins and maybe anything else that's related. And we kind of got directed to this topic by talking about things that are bad for the brain, but we can also expand into chemicals, metals that are bad for the body. In fact, we're battling exposure to these toxins in our food, our water, air, and even things like cosmetics, skin lotions, shampoo, etc. So Mary Kay, where do you like to start when the, the topic of, of toxins or mycotoxins, heavy metals, when that comes up, how do you begin to talk about that with your clients? Well, you know, I think it's really important when you're talking to a patient or a client to get a good feeling of what their expososome is, because we all have one, right? And so really, you have to, I do almost, I do a very intense intake and ask everything. I want to know everything. I want to know where you grew. I want to know about your birth. I want to know, you know, everything because your exposure to chemicals and tobacco and how close to an expressway do you live? Everything, it seems like in this world today is toxic. And depending on your genetics and, and your, your baseline health and your immune system, it can certainly affect you. And everybody has a tipping factor, if you will. And when you hit your tipping factor, that's when you get sick. And you know, Bob, that happened to me. So it's something I've just been really sensitive to. I, it's fascinating to me how, you know, some people are like George Burns and they can just smoke and drink and cuss and carry on and be, you know, to a great old age. And then some of us, you know, are that person who you're like, what happened to me? How did this happen? And especially with the standard American diet and everything else, I think it all feeds into each other and can create a real toxic disaster. 
you know, I have I have to say that uh, my dad, who grew up in South Alabama, you know, was not the healthiest guy. I mean, he had a lot of typical chronic diseases. And when I used to talk to him about his lifestyle, he would say, well, what about Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill would get up every, who he idolized, and he right. would say, well, Winston Churchill, you know, would get up and have a whiskey and a cigar every morning for breakfast. And, you know, he lived to a ripe old age. So, you know, <laughs> that's a that's a fairly standard kind of response that people hear is they, they pick someone who seemed to get away with it. But I think the, the problem is that the people you and I see are the canaries, the canaries that's in right. the coal mine, the, the people who are who are really sensitive. And it's not that these people are freaks, right? These people just happen to be a little more sensitive than the rest of us. And they're the ones that are kind of leading the way in saying, hey, guys, there's something out there in our environment, as you said, the exposome. There's something out there that you should be concerned about. I agree that I think doing a really thorough history is great. When I was in medical school, the the extent of my environmental history taking that I was taught was to ask people if they live near a smelter. Ah. Right? So they, do you live near a smelter? And they go, no. And you go, okay, you're fine. Let's move on. <laughs> and, you know, and we know there's a lot more to it than that. So, you know, I think you mentioned that you uh, had experienced a, a mold exposure. Where did that come from? You know, how did you, and how did you find out about that? If you don't mind talking about it. No, not at all. Um, gosh, you know, now it seems like a lifetime ago. You know, when you get sick, most people, I don't think, develop a whole array of diagnoses overnight. It's mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, I will never forget, I woke up and my finger was so painful and I had tenosynovitis and I don't, I didn't know where that came from. It started me on a mission and I ended up um, going to have an MRI and I was diagnosed with tenosynovitis. Then I went to a rheumatologist and he said, you have psoriatic arthritis. During that time, prior to that, I had been having chronic bronchitis, vertigo, horrible vertigo, tinnitus. I couldn't sleep and I couldn't breathe. And then I would, I would develop pneumonia periodically. Um, so I was living on antibiotics, inhalers, and steroids. Oh my. And you were working full-time. And I was working full-time in the emergency room. So shift work, which is really, I was never a great sleeper with shift work anyhow. And so everything was just getting bad. And then my hands went bad and my fingers. And then I developed a rash all over my hands, my face, chronic coughing. You know, I mean, I was a disaster. Things and, were unraveling, um, it sounds like. Things were unraveling. I actually was looking at do I need to go on disability? Because I worked in a level one trauma center. I mean, how am I going to intubate or sew people up or do the things you have to do with your hands when my fingers are so swollen, I can hardly bend them. Oh my. Yeah. And so I went to the rheumatologist. I was in there for about five minutes and he said, you know, you have psoriatic arthritis. I um, said to myself, well, how in the world can he diagnose me in five minutes? And he wanted to put me on Embril. And he wanted me to go get a physical exam, make sure I don't have tuberculosis. And when I went to go get the physical exam, I had all these thyroid nodules. So that prompted biopsies. So at the end of the day, I decided this was not for me. I didn't feel like anybody really had a great answer. And I went to IFM. 
and that was it. The and Institute the other, for Functional Medicine. And there is one more thing I forgot to mention. So I had to, I was having, I was um, working full time and I had to give grand rounds and I know I was exhausted. I had been testing myself, trying to figure all of this stuff out. And so I was making that transition from um, a more traditional physician to functional medicine, really. But I didn't even know what I was transitioning to. I was just searching. Mm -hmm. And I had done a cortisol test. And, and honestly, I did it four times during the day, salivary. It was all at the top of the paper. <laughs> it didn't go anywhere near so the your chart. adrenals were going crazy. Oh, big time. So I went and gave this lecture and I started having chest pain. And I thought to myself, you know, gosh, you know, am I having a heart attack? So I went ahead and gave the lecture and went back to the office and got a EKG and checked my blood pressure and ended up in the hospital with a high troponin and went to the cath lab and I had taco subo, which for the listeners, that is stress-induced cardiomyopathy and the ventricle wasn't really pumping properly. And so I remember the cardiologist saying, Mary Kay, if you're going to have something cardiac, it's the best thing to have. Your vessels are pristine. This is from stress. And I think it's from the cortisol, actually. And um, because when your body is pumping out cortisol, it's also pumping out, you know, epinephrine, right? You're getting more adrenaline. And that stunned my heart. So I had to spend, you know, three or four nights in the hospital on a monitored bed. And when I got out that Friday, I flew to take the cardiometabolic in Boston. And I started going to the Institute for Functional Medicine. And honestly, that is what I think saved my life. We had had a leak in our house. It had been going on. It was misdiagnosed. It didn't come right through the walls. So I went to go change a painting that I'd ordered a painting from Florida when we were on vacation. Went to go hang it in my sunroom. And the wall, when I removed the other one, was black. Oh. Yes. And so we had had this leak, and water went from where the leak originated in the middle of the house all the way out to the exterior wall and down. So it's full of black mold. Full of black mold. Absolutely. And you've been breathing that day and night. That's right. That's right. And, and I have I, to ask, did your, your husband was living in the house too? Yes. And did he feel any of this or not? He, he didn't think he did. But listen, we started going back and really looking. And he was having all of these urticarial breakouts, hives. Mm, he was breaking hives. out in hives. And he would have these really weird attacks. He ended up developing sarcoidosis. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Which is a disease that looks like TB, but no TB found. That's exactly right. You know, I asked that because I... Uh, I've often told uh, audience members the story of a uh, a woman that developed all kinds of weird symptoms. I think she was anemic, her hair was falling out, her nails didn't look good. And finally, somebody diagnosed her with arsenic poisoning. And it, it turned out it had been from working in a shed behind her house where she was doing some remodeling. She had all these symptoms. Her husband, who was with her, had no symptoms at all. Wow, isn't that and something? His, and then they measured his arsenic levels, and they were higher than her, which just goes to show you that, you know, you can't, if, if I'm a doctor and I'm taking a history and, I, and you tell me, well, I've got all these symptoms, and then I say, well, how about your other family members? Oh, well, they're fine. You know, then the doctor's going to think, oh, um, 
you know, this woman's probably got a psychosomatic problem because everybody else should have it. You know, if, yeah. if she's got it, everybody else should have symptoms. But even we know with COVID, you can have one person in the family that's sick and everybody else is fine. So everybody's individual. That's exactly right. It's fascinating. So, you know, it's your genetics and it's the mm-hmm. uh, world in which you dip them, right? So it's a combination of your genes, your susceptibility, all that stuff. Absolutely. It's just, uh, and I had the perfect storm. But you know, it was interesting. We went, I have so far, knock on wood, been able to really put all of that behind me. Yeah, and, you're healthy uh, now, right? I mean, you're working full time and yeah, feel I, great. I, I feel yeah. great. So you, you got magically over psoriatic arthritis, which is not a condition that <laughs> rheumatologists would say you ever recover from. That's exactly right. And I can't imagine, honestly, where I would be today if I had gone on the biologics that they wanted me to and done all of these other things. I think I would just be a chronically ill patient. Somebody would say, oh, do you remember Dr. Ross? Yeah, she died, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she died. Too bad. She did, you know, got the best medical care available (laughs) and continued to go downhill, which is, you know, a very similar story to what Dr. Terry Walls tells us about multiple being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and doing everything she was told to do, having the best specialist in the world and was continuing to go downhill, ending up on a wheelchair. And finally, she said, to heck with that. I'm going to do my own thing. And now she's dancing. Now she's it's dancing. Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's a- so, wow. <laughs> you know, I think our body wants to do the right thing. And I think that we have to figure out how to allow that to happen, whether it's changing your diet, getting out of your exposure, you know, starting to exercise, but do the right thing. And that's what I wanted to ask you. So what do you think, what were the things that were most important for your healing from this exposure to mycotoxins? And and did it end up just being mycotoxins or were there other sources of toxins in your environment that you had to deal with? You know, it's a great question. And I think you and I have talked about this sometimes. Like I have, I question people that, um, I shouldn't say this, but I do question people that are all one thing, right? You can't, everything's not always what you think it is. You really have to keep an open mind and look. So um, I did the whole uh, IFM training, which was just wonderful for me. And um, I also went to ILADS. And ILADS, for people that don't know it, is the Lyme and, and Tick Associated Disease Group. They're in Washington, D.C., and, it, you know, they're an international tick group. But anyhow, I listened to all the symptoms, and at that time, I was a patient, really. I was sick, and I kept, I looked at my husband, and I said, I got this. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, okay, well, let's do a test. Well, my test was positive. Uh, for Lyme. <laughs> for Lyme. Yeah. But, you know, I, um, and so it was a decision I made because I, I do know quite a few Lyme literate physicians and they wanted to put me on a lot of antibiotics and anti-malarials. And I just felt like I've probably had Lyme if I have it forever. I grew up on a farm. I've always been in the country and lots of animals and tick bites. And so I chose to do what I do with my patients today. If I think you have chronic Lyme is build your immune system, let your body take it. Nobody's getting that out of me. It's going to be there forever. So I need to figure out how to control it and live with it. And so for me, one of my favorite supplements is curcumin. Uh, 
And then I, you know, did a lot of deep dive and I have horrific genes. So I have all of the MTHFR and I'm a horrible methylator and I have factor five Leiden and all these things. So methylation is a really big deal for me. NAC is a really big deal for me. N-acetylcysteine. Yes. So I, you know, I take four N-acetylcysteine a day. I have taken as many as eight curcumin a day when I was really sick. I don't do that anymore. I probably take two a day and I'm fine. But back in the day, I really bumped it up. Um, I did a lot of research and saw, you know, sort of the levels for safety. Omega-3s are big for me. So I take omega-3s, curcumin, NAC. I take uh, the methyl B12. It's not B12. It's the B-complex, number B 12. B-complex, yeah. B-complex 12, and, yeah. And methyl guard plus. And, and really, those are in zinc. Those are my big things. What do you think about people, and, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just maybe if you could quickly address this, the people that say you can over-methylate and that methylation is, you know, dangerous and you have to be super careful with it. I can say that has not been my experience, but uh, what do you say to people that... that, It hasn't been mine either. I think I've had one patient that actually, you know, had a big methylation problem and had a history of psychiatric illness. And when we gave her methyl donors, she kind of went over the deep end. That's Uh, happened one time in 20 years. 20 years. Mm -hmm. I think methylation is so important. And I know for me, I mean, I probably, it's never affected me in a bad way. Yeah. It's been everything that I've needed. And um, I do know that with some people, you can start a detox and they get sick. And then I let their body kind of tell me how fast to move. When I first took a curcumin, I felt like I had the flu. Oh, so it's a principle that I think our readers should understand that sometimes when, you, when you're when you very maladaptive, your body has developed this high toxic load from mycotoxins, metals, infections, things like that. When you start to correct that, then it, it stirs things up. And you can actually have a little bit of a worsening of symptoms. And that's not an unusual thing in my experience, you know, 36 years as a clinician that that people may feel a little bit worse before they feel better. And I, I see that with like people that take methylguard and they go, oh, I feel more agitated or I couldn't sleep. And I just say, well, back off on the dose. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take it. It just means we need to go more slowly, which I think is a good principle for detoxification. It is. And, you know, that it does. That- People don't come with instructions. <laughs> so, you know, we have instructions on There's bottles, no manual. They don't, that's exactly right. So, you know, I always tell people, you know, I'm going to write this program for you. But at the end of the day, you're writing the program. Because I may be pushing the envelope, which I tend to do. I always like to get things up and running. And if I'm overzealous and you feel bad, we're going to change it. We're just going to cut it back. You, you, you write this program and a lot of people think they have an allergy to things and it's not an allergy. I mean, the reality is you were right. You have a problem and this is going to help you, but it has to go slowly. I, I could give arsenic again as another example, because it's something I've really delved into a lot, which is that arsenic, you, the body detoxifies arsenic by methylating it, but 
problem is that when you add one methyl group to arsenic, it actually makes it more toxic. So it's monomethyl arsenic is actually right. to very toxic. Uh, so you have to methylate it multiple times to get rid of it. You have the dimethyl arsenic and that, you know, that starts to be less toxic. So you, you actually have to go through a phase to get rid of arsenic where things get worse before they get better. And that's well known in the medical literature. And so it's just a general principle of, of detoxification is that, you know, you have to hang in there with it. You have to hang in. You do. You definitely do. And I think you have to expect to get better. You can't go in with a negative view because you, if you feel worse, it's just going to, you know, those are the people that quit. So why don't we take a break right now? And then when we come back, we'll answer some questions from the community. Do you want a monthly dose of wellness delivered directly to your inbox? Thorns Take 5 Daily offers the latest wellness news, research, and insights distilled down into easy-to-digest and fun-to-read stories. It's updated weekly with stories from Thorns' very own medical team. You'll read about the latest in immune health, diet, lifestyle advice, managing stress, and more. Head to thorn.com and visit Take 5 Daily to subscribe for free and have your wellness content delivered directly to your inbox. Visit thorn.com to learn more. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions from the community. Our first question this week comes from a listener who asks, Aren't molds everywhere? If so, what makes a mold toxic, a particular mold? Ha, huh, that's a great question. Molds are everywhere. Mold is nature's great disintegrator. It's and the largest, isn't it the largest biomass on the planet? Yes, I mean, they're, yeah. they are everywhere. They're going to be everywhere. We're not going to get rid of them. Some people would say kind of like cockroaches in the South. I mean, it's just, <laughs> they're there, right? Yep. And, and the thing that makes them toxic, a couple of things. Um, and so it's not really the mold itself. It's, it's what it releases into your environment. And so it can be the spores and it really can also be the mycotoxins. And <clears throat> mold's a living organism. We were never meant to live with mold. You know, outside it's, it's um, more dispersed, right? It's, it's diluted because of the environment. But when it's in your bedroom behind your headboard, it's a different story. And, and so then um, all molds don't release mycotoxins, but the ones that do are very toxic. Um, and um, those mycotoxins are families. So they have names and then there's families of them. And some are more toxic than others. Um, they become airborne. You can inhale them, ingest them, and um, and that's when they're toxic. Does it is it bad to walk through a rainforest? You know, with the, where you get that moldy smell. Is that actually an unhealthy thing? No, I don't think it is at all. 
So I really don't. I mean, I think so, you can get a bolus of mold in uh-huh. the environment outside. So think about the gardeners and the people where things, you know, but but just walking through a forest, we've all done it. We've all smelt, you know, the fungal smell. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, maybe, you know, but I don't think anybody has obtained a huge illness from walking through a forest. So the problem is if it's in your house from from a, a water damage scenario, a leaky water heater or a pipe or something. Yeah, that's the problem. And, you know, it, it's like a little toxic stew in there. Mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. just mold. So it can mm-hmm. have VOCs and all these other compounds that aren't good for you. So it makes a toxic house. You know, it's a sick building. Well, that kind of segues into the next question, which somebody asked, uh, does mycotoxin poisoning mainly occur through mold in the air or is it through food or both? It can be both. So Mm -hmm. it's really interesting, you know, when you look back historically, when did you first hear about mycotoxins, Bob? Oh, um, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. Okay. So originally all the studies that were done were agricultural. And so it's an animal feed from grains that sit in a silo and become moldy and, you know, that kind of thing. And these, these animals were ingesting them and they can become sick. And um, we certainly do ingest mycotoxins. Some foods are higher in mycotoxins than others. But traditionally, the really big illness comes from mold in the air. But it can be both. Definitely. Yeah, well, I definitely remember talking about aflatoxin in medical school, which was decades ago, you know, but it was kind of like, that's something that happens over there, you know, in some other place. It like doesn't happen, you know, in modern countries. It happens in places where people don't store their food properly. But I don't think that's true. I think uh, anybody can get exposed to moldy peanuts or moldy grains or things like that. I think that's that's exactly right. It's more common than what we realize. Much more. And yeah, I think we're becoming much more aware. So uh, the next question, again, is kind of related that's saying, well, if we're, um, you know, if we are getting exposed to this in our environment, you know, the, the person didn't really ask it, but, uh, you know, kind of a corollary of that is, is there any way to avoid it? And if you can't avoid it, are there any supplements that you can take? to deal with the things that you can't avoid. So in other words, if these mold toxins are somewhat ubiquitous, what can the average person do about it? Well, I think that, you know, if we have a good immune system and good nutritional function and we're not living in it. So let's say you're that person that visited a hotel room or, you know, you're at your great aunt's house and it smells a little funky and But you're going home Sunday, so it's okay. (laughs) Uh I think you stay healthy. And, you know, there are ways to detox. So certainly glutathione, taking NAC. I'm a big NAC person, as you know. Reducing and and stay on top of, of sort of your stuff, if you will. But let's say you're on top of it. So you're like me and you take all the things I take. It doesn't mean that I can go and live somewhere and withstand a fairly long-term mold exposure. Then it requires, when I get a patient that's been living in mold, it requires much more and it requires binders. So it requires detoxing and then binders that actually attach themselves to the mold and then you excrete it. Now, I know there are prescription binders like cholestyramine <clears throat> or colocevalam 
Do you know anything about using things like modified citrus pectin, pectinates, things like that? Do you think they have potential to bind? Absolutely. I very seldom use cholestyramine because most people just don't like the side effects and mm, the constipation. I, yeah. And so for me, I feel like, you know, GID tax is a great one. Um, Ultra binder is a good one. Some people do better with one versus the other. Certainly pectin is good. Any fiber is going to help also just get rid of toxins. Um, but then the binders themselves are great. And so, yeah. I use so using something like, fi like fiber mend would be a good thing? You could, you could. I like, um, yeah, fiber mend is excellent, actually. It's, it's in my toxin list of things to use in my bundle. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, absolutely. Talk, let's talk a little bit about heavy metals. Um, and there's actually a series of questions that are all kind of related, which is, well, well what exactly is a heavy metal? And how is a heavy metal different than a mineral that might be beneficial like zinc like you know or, or they're, they're clearly different kinds of metals and some are good or some are bad how what's the actual definition of what makes a metal good or bad or heavy or lighter okay so a heavy metal they're they're all naturally occurring elements right mm -hmm. um, but they have a high atomic weight um, mm -hmm. and I mm -hmm. think their density is I remember I think um maybe four or five times greater than that of water. Does that yeah, sound yeah. about right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it's heavier than, <laughs> um, much heavier than water. Yeah, okay. Um, and then, you know, the other elements are um, things that actually we need in our bodies and they're not toxic. And, and some people will tell you that when you talk about um, like essential elements and toxic um, heavy metals that it just really depends also on the dose that you're talking about. Right. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Um, because little zinc you know, is good for you, but exactly. 200 milligrams is not exactly. So it's the dose. It's how you're exposed and, and what the chemical species is. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So that somebody actually asked, so we, you know, we talk about heavy metal toxicity, but then what about iron deficiency or, or zinc deficiency or copper deficiency are aren't those metals? Those are, and and you can be deficient, and we replace them. Absolutely, you know, we definitely do. But at the same time, we use just the right amount. Exactly. We 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 know their safety, and and we know when we are overdoing it, and we definitely use the proper dose, or we try to. <laughs> so I guess kind of a natural question that's arising from this is like does that when you call something a heavy metal that it's that many times heavier than water does that automatically mean it's toxic you know that's a great question um no i don't think it does automatically mean it's toxic but when we talk about heavy metals we talk about we think of their toxicity do we not i mean yeah you know that's kind of the implication is it is that's exactly right so here's somebody asked can a heavy metal actually make you heavy? Does it impact your weight if you have heavy metals? Oh, well, okay. Great question. It's an interesting concept, <laughs> it's, I it's think. It's an interesting concept. So it's it's not like you ate a 10-pound lead weight and now you're going to weigh 10 more pounds, right? I mean, when you're when you have heavy metal toxicity, 
first of all, our bodies like to store things in fat. And so when you, it can happen over time, it doesn't usually happen immediately, although you can have a very acute toxicity as well. Think about mercury amalgams. I mean, you know, that mercury is a toxic heavy metal and it certainly emits a vapor that we absorb from the amalgam. Um, that's one way of doing it. Um, and that is stored in fat. So do we gain weight from that? Not necessarily. However, some people with toxicity do gain weight. Um, and uh, honestly, that's usually more mold. So, and, There's and a, sort of- an old saying that I heard Jeff Land say once, which is that uh, the solution to pollution is dilution. Absolutely. And that the body does that. So if you're polluted, if you've got heavy metals or other kinds of toxins, the body will put on fat to dilute the local concentration of the metal or the toxin. Yeah, That's exactly right. And some people, when they lose too much weight. So this was one of the things I saw with Dale's program, Dale Bredesen's program, is that if you're really being very like, you know, um, careful with your diet and following it to the T, you lose too much weight and you're toxic, you suddenly become sicker because you're dumping it all. Uh, the other thing I've I've read, um, and I don't know how many studies have been done on this, but when a woman hits menopause and starts losing bone mass, mm-hmm. that her lead levels go up. It's absolutely true. And so most of the lead is stored in the long bones, in the fat in the long bones. And, and certainly your bone structure changes as you go through menopause, and then you can release it. Absolutely. And it can also you know, move, things shift and they'll store elsewhere. And think about where's the rest of the fat? It's in your brain. your brain, in your brain. So maybe some of the symptoms we attribute to a drop in hormones with menopause are actually from lead toxicity. You never know. I mean, it certainly could be. You know, it's interesting because now I have a different view from the body model, but. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, which is the heaviest of the metals do you, have a comment on that like is it uranium or you know one of those plutonium something like that that no i'm trying to remember what it is and i do know the answer to this question but oh i do know that uranium is pretty heavy and it comes up here in colorado because we've got a lot of mines oh yeah that we're left open and so okay. you know it's something you might not think about in the east coast but when you got mines like up in the high mountains, if the mines get runoff, that can actually go into the water supply for dead oh, yeah. water. And, you know, so you've got people that are drinking, you know, water that maybe came from hundreds of miles away from a mine that you wouldn't even think was near you. Oh, my and goodness. Then, some of these, I have found uranium, and that's why I, I that's the one that came to mind, but I, um, you know, have found uranium in people's hair and their urine, so it's Wow, it's not that's that uncommon. That's interesting. Yeah. No, you definitely when you think about environmental toxins, you need to think about the area that you're that the person is from and where they where they live and what they've been exposed to. Is it could it be bismuth? Is that the heaviest? Oh, I well, know. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting cuz bismuth that we tend to think of therapeutically. Uh, I actually have a little rock of bismuth that I have in my office that I show people you know, when I give them a bismuth product, you know, to help them with their gut. So right, that's, right. 
That's kind of an interesting thing. Do you do the um, Thorn has a test for heavy metals? Is that something that you do? That is uh, something that I I have quite a few out right now. I had not done Thorn pre previously, and then you know so I didn't. I don't think I was aware that Thorn had a heavy metal test. So now I've actually been doing quite a few of them, and I think it's a great test. Previously, I had done you know, the pre and post provocation. And I switched away from that probably two and a half years ago and, and did more of a try test mm -hmm. that didn't Look require provocation. Yes. Yeah. 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 And uh, so, yeah, because I feel like giving the provocation is something that some people do well with and some people don't. Some people can actually have, have side effects from that. That's exactly right. So who would you do the test on? And that's actually one of the questions is like, what are the common problems that heavy metal toxicity can cause? Like, can it cause hair loss? Can it stunt my child's growth? Well, so heavy, they can cause so many different problems. If we're talking about children, it can certainly be in all kinds of learning disabilities. You know, you can have uh, some skin issues and certainly GI issues in adults. Certainly, it can obviously the big thing that I work with every day, so it just comes right to my mind is cognition. But it's not just cognition, it can also be autoimmune issues, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it can be GI issues. And I was just going to throw this out there that I recently spoke with a uh, scientist at uh, UW that wanted to use some of my patient data to look at cadmium. And they believe that cadmium is causing leaky gut and that it's causing dementia from the gut. Oh, wow. Interesting. So I don't know what she's done with the data or how far she's gotten to know what her, if her hypothesis is right. But that was what she was working on. Should, um, I guess one last question I, I really wanted to throw in, which is, should, should people worry about getting heavy metals from their vitamin supplements or their protein powders or... Anything like that? Is that a? a I think thing that's a really good question. About? So when you're taking Ayurvedic herbs, um, certainly many of them can come from areas of the, of the world that have have more uh, pollution and heavy metals. And I think it's really important to make sure that you know where things are sourced. And you know, heavy metals can be in the soil, right? Um, so we can get you know um, arsenic from um rice and and it's you know because the rice actually is searching for i can't remember the name of the chemical that looks molecularly just like arsenic and it just naturally absorbs it and so it's in there and uh, sucks it up like a sponge um certainly from um pesticides around orange groves you know that um soak it up as well so they do need, you need to think about where things are sourced from. I think it's really important to use organic things if we're talking about fruits and things. And then from your supplements, it's the sourcing is all about it. And to go you with the company that. that, yeah, and to go with a company that uh, does good quality control that's, that's not, you know, exactly checking right. for these things. And, um, yep. But I, I mean, I would say it's impossible to get all the lead out, you know, it's because there's a certain amount of these heavy metals that are naturally occurring. And so you can't get down to zero, but you can certainly get below a threshold. That's and exactly I, I right. I think that's important. I, I know like in California, they have all these laws about, 
you know, you if there's even the slightest amount of a metal, you got to put it on your label. And people say to me, wow, does that mean it's toxic? No, um, you need to check the actual level because there's a certain threshold that you just can't go below because it's we're talking about nature. That's right. Um, you know, and I have had the same problem with California and that law that um, they put it in there. But definitely um, it's, you know, you're going to have a certain amount. There's no doubt. Well, I think that's all we have time for this week. Uh, Dr. Ross, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, this is three times in a row, which is wonderful. And as always, uh, where can listeners go if they want to find out more about what you're doing? I recommend that they check the Thorn website and there will be, we'll be talking about what we're doing. I'm not exactly sure the form that it's going to take, but um, we will be announcing things and announcing the brain program. And hope, hopefully I will be involved as well in a blog. In the there. blog, yeah. That's so, the thought, but that is not, not uh, actually manifested yet. <laughs> but stay tuned. Some exciting things are on the horizon, on the near horizon. That's exactly right. Thank you, Bob. Excellent. Well, that was Thorne's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Mary Kay Ross, talking about mycotoxins and heavy metals. Uh, It's been great talking to you, Mary Kay. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. And until next time. Thanks for listening to the Thorne Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at thornhealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.